and welcome to the show. This episode is coming to you November 16th, 2016, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Stephen Gao and Murray Williams. Today, we're going to talk about the implications of Trump's economic policies. Our intention here is to concentrate the discussion on the policies and not about Trump himself. So I have Stephen Gao and Murray Williams with me. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Glad to be here. Thanks. Welcome as well. So, Stephen, if you could just introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Stephen. I work at the Department of Medicine at UCSF as a research financial analyst. Essentially, I, I manage the investment funds for medical research for the Department of Medicine. Okay. And Murray? Yeah, my name is Murray Williams, and I'm a former stockbroker and bond broker, and I've worked in the IT sector. I'm also a former professional blackjack player and hold several security licenses, including the Series 65, and I'm an investor as well. All right. So, like I said before, our intention here is to concentrate our discussion on the economic policies proposed by Donald Trump. We hope to omit discussion about him or his character as a person, as it's obviously a contentious issue right now. We just want to focus very specifically on the potential positive or negative economic impacts of the policies that he has proposed in the event that they are implemented. The first policy we wanted to debate is the proposed fiscal stimulus through government and infrastructure spending. Murray, what are your thoughts on that? Just from an economics background, my belief is that stimulus fiscal spending really doesn't work as far as stimulating an economy. I believe that it works for the local community, but not necessarily for a country as a whole. An example I cite is back when President Obama first took office and he passed a fiscal stimulus that was over a trillion dollars, almost a trillion dollars, and he lauded it as it would jumpstart the economy, and it really didn't. I believe that building bridges and, and things like that are important to the economy as far as commerce, but I'm not necessarily sold on the idea of Keynesian fiscal stimulus. I really don't think it'll really have much of an effect. Yeah, yeah see, just to add to that, Murray, I remember when Obama mentioned the American Investment Recovery Act. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Yes, but like I feel like even Donald Trump said he would implement something similar to infrastructure spending. I feel like whenever there's a, a newly elected administration or a newly elected president, infrastructure spending is kind of like if you're a basketball player and you're trying to come up with very cunning moves to impress the crowd or defeat your opponents, it's almost like a, a, a very fundamental go-to safety act to execute, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's probably has a stronger impact in the short run than in the long run. So yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. I completely agree with that. See, I think it's a very short-term focused idea. Yeah. I mean, if the government can efficiently deploy capital where it creates value and wealth for society, then that's great. But I think it's usually short-term spending. And of course, we run a fiscal deficit, so it's always debt spending. It stimulates the economy in the short term, but you end up owing right. more in the future. So I think it's short-term good, long-term not so good. And, and definitely for the local community where the spending happens, like if they decided to build a bridge in a local area, there's going to be stimulated activity in that area. But as a whole, I don't really see like a massive fiscal stimulus package would do much to help the economy on a macro level. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. Well, I don't know that I would entirely agree with that because, like I said, if government poured, let's say, something absurd, like $10 trillion into the economy, of course, you're going to see development and the stock market go up and inflation go up. But is that necessarily a good thing in the long run, you know, if you're spending a whole bunch of money that you don't have? 
there's also like a two-part way of seeing it is we're talking or discussing it as a means of job creation but then there's also the indirect effect of aggregate demand for raw materials like if it's for developing roads then it's going to be i guess maybe dallas you can elaborate on this like what would the demand be for oil at that time if we wanted to implement further development in our infrastructure and that would raise up the need to create roads which are made by asphalt which is indirectly made from oil or comes from oil so i feel like the well, raw materials commodities market there is a demand there is a need yeah there's an impact sense well i was gonna say there there is a need for new roads would be nice bigger schools would be nice these kind of things but can we afford it so i think it's a double-edged sword mm-hmm. yeah yeah another thing is just you mentioned it's good in the short run versus the long run when president obama got elected the second term wasn't guaranteed so it was probably one of those tactical measures to say okay this is going to be obviously a short-term goal we want to get the people galvanized about change and things of that nature but on a bigger scale, this debt-based reserve spending is something I have a problem with personally. Not having any of our fiat currency tied to precious metals is something I'm concerned about in the long run. But I feel like in the short run, no one's really focusing on it now, per se. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of see where you're coming from. But the problem with fiscal spending, especially with the Obama stimulus, you had a situation because you can actually pay someone to dig a ditch and then fill it back up again, and you're creating a job. But that's right. not really a productive job. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. And it is good for that person, for that worker. But on the other end, let's say you've got a city, it's a major commercial city, and there's no bridges to it. And they're spending a fortune shuttling back and forth on ferries. And it will be very economically advantageous to build a bridge because it will be much better and easier for the economy to operate. But so... I agree with Dallas when he says fiscal spending is a double-edged sword. You want to build bridges and items that have economic impact, but avoid just paying some guy to dig a ditch and fill it up again. Right, right. So I'm reminded of the concept of subsistence and wages. Like you want to create jobs that are more of a long-term impact than just a one-and-done, dig a hole and leave kind of situation. Yeah. Is that right? It's like, remember Obama when he said shovel-ready work? Right, I remember right. that one very well. So, yeah. It's, it has its pros and its cons. I mean, my personal belief is that fiscal spending should be really targeted. It should be the blanket thing and the idea of a Keynesian way to stimulate aggregate demand, which I believe that economic thought is, is a little bit flawed, actually. But yeah, I, my, I think it's one of those things where you're pulling the cart before the horse. If you're trying to <laughs> stimulate demand, it's like the economy is supposed to meet demands, not create demands. <laughs> exactly, right. yeah. So I haven't read too much about what Donald Trump's proposed, but would it be the similar approach to fiscal stimulus that Obama did when he came in, or is there something different than what Trump would do? Well, there's just been a lot of discussion, I don't think specific to Trump, but in terms of both Republicans and Democrats, people are saying, okay, the Fed has done its part, they've done monetary stimulus, so now it's time for the government to get in order and do fiscal stimulus. Because basically, the Fed has done a ton, and people are still concerned about the economy, so we're saying... Too long the status quo. 
Yeah, the Fed is kind of like the elephant in the room that no one really wants to talk about, but that's another economic myth that just printing money is just a way to stimulate the economy, and, and it really doesn't. It just creates more inflation. But yeah, a good fiscal stimulus thing would actually be building the Keystone Pipeline, because if you actually build a pipeline that you hire workers to create a pipeline that creates more energy, that's another example of a successful stimulus program, in, in my view. All right, let's 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 go ahead and move on. The next thing that was on the agenda, renegotiating or withdrawing from international trade deals such as NAFTA and TPP. Stephen, what are your thoughts? TPP. So, I mean, I've been trying to focus on where the economic power is changing. The change of the guard seems to be acquiescing towards Asia. And so people are trying to understand how the economies of not just China, but Southeast Asia specifically are being thrown in the mix here. And the thing with these trade deals is we're, we're oftentimes left out of the full picture up until like the last moments. So I know that with globalization, a lot of people are concerned about American jobs and job creation. It's funny because I was watching uh, Mr. Robot the other day. It's essentially, it's a story about this hacker. He's a programmer by day, but he's a hacker by night. And so there's a, a scene where he talks about Apple and how they're such a great and successful company. But if you really look behind the curtain, how they exploit workers in Asia and just the inexpensive labor is something that has been controversial. So I feel like, and again, I don't know the specifics of TPP, but it's targeted towards redesigning job creation between Asia and America. And I'm looking at it from the producer and the consumer side. Everyone's focused on the producer side right now is, how do we make sure that the American producers are giving more economic empowerment to American citizens over Asian companies or multinationals giving more economic power to Asian citizens? And that's where the populist notion of nationalism or nativism has kind of come to rise. So from what most economists, especially folks like Adam Smith, have said, we need open and free trade or need to be open to free trade because of the natural sense of competitive advantage. You know, we don't want to overstress ourselves if we know that we can outsource certain things. Having said that, it is mindful to have an economy where workers are thriving, they're being able to take care of themselves and, and spend and continually foment GDP. With NAFTA, sources like The Economist would say, it seems like Mexico's really at a state to lose a lot of its current economic power because we would be renegotiating where jobs are being made, where products and services are being produced and made, and, and where jobs are being designed from. So a lot is left on the table to be discussed. What I'm most concerned about, I guess, in regards to trade deals is there are certain things, certain setups that have been, for a long time, just been left in place. Like when Obama came in, certain things were left, certain relationships were left. I know Trump has talked about changing up things with countries like Saudi Arabia or Japan or Korea, where we kind of, quote unquote, invest in their security. So if they're not paying their due, then why should we continue to pay for them? Long story short, what I'm getting at is that his focus on the American economy, I feel, is going to marginalize outside economies more so than the economic impact of our own. But, you know, what he's saying about stuff with China and, and slapping high tariffs, I'm curious to see how China's reaction will be. And, and he adamantly wants to call them a currency manipulator. So it's really interesting to see, because China, they love to do things without really them being seen. So I'm interested to see, maybe you guys can shed some light on that from your realms of expertise. But how do you think impact with China and exacting tariffs would be for the I, Chinese makers? In my mind, historically, having a trade war is not really a good thing for anybody. Right. And as far as TPP goes, which sounds like a bad toilet paper joke, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I 
just don't really see a need for it because there's already massive amounts of labor that is manufacturing American products back into the American market. So I'm not really sure the advantage of what TPP would actually do for the American economy. As far as NAFTA goes, it's pros and cons, whether it's been good or bad for the United yeah. States economy. But I was talking with Dallas the other day, and back in the old days, when Henry Ford revolutionized the assembly line, and uh-huh. he actually started paying his frontline workers massive amounts of money. And everyone thought he was crazy, but it actually worked out very well, and his company was incredibly profitable. So the simplistic notion of just manufacturing products overseas because of cheap labor I'm not necessarily sure that they are looking at the whole picture because if you outsource everything and you don't make anything in the United States, there's less money going around and it becomes like a shell of what it once was. I totally agree with you there, Murray. And just to add to that, I feel like we should be the the smarter nation in providing innovative services where if other countries are are able to produce products at a more affordable rate for multinational firms, we should provide those cutting-edge services. Mm-hmm. And look, you know, look out for jobs in that sense because it's it's a service-oriented economy. So my concern is how well can we come up with a gamut of companies or different types of service-oriented businesses with these right. trade deals. And I mean, one of the main reasons why American companies are shipping jobs overseas is basically high labor costs here. It's the minimum wage, and this is something that nobody wants to talk about because it seems like a third rail of American politics. Because if you say you want to reduce the minimum wage and people just go nuts politically, I'll take them away with the poor. Economically, there is only so high you can raise the minimum wage. What if the government said, we're going to raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour, right? What do you think that would do to the economy? It would absolutely destroy it. And I mean, fast food prices are so high now, I can actually get a meal cheaper at a sit-down restaurant than I can at a McDonald's, in all honesty. Because it's just with the high minimum wage of paying fast food workers, it's actually cheaper just to go to a buffet or something and they just go to Burger King. Things like minimum wage, I feel like we have to have like more of a multidimensional approach. To grow the economy, there has to be a higher velocity in how we spend and save or just the cycle of consumption and production. So increasing minimum wages in one aspect, it could be good for the worker, but you know, you, then you just say, like, the companies will find ways to make sure that the bottom line stays in the black. It does not go to the red. So I feel like there have to be multidimensional ways of looking at how to appease to both sides, the producer and the consumer. The higher right. the minimum yeah. wage is, the more you incentivize companies to automate. And so that's true. Yeah. things like servers and toll takers and jobs that we have people doing, if the minimum wage went too high those jobs would be automated into computers faster than would naturally occur through a free economy, I believe. So then those workers would end up being displaced instead of actually having a job and a wage. But back on your just general point, getting back to more of the international trade, I completely agree with you on the Adam Smith point. When you think of the perspective of humanity, free trade is definitely a positive all the way. But then when you try to focus in on what's good for one nation only, then it becomes more complicated. And whether you should have restrictive policies on trade between like tariffs and this and that becomes much more complicated. But in a certain way, that's kind of nation selfish and not considering the other nations. That's naturally the inclination of any nation is they're going to be looking out for themselves. And it's hard to try to think of it from the perspective of humanity as a whole. So it's kind of trying to weigh both sides where look out for yourselves 
or in this case, look out for America, but then also look out for the world. And how can you balance both? Exactly. Yeah, that's always been the balancing act, definitely. Let's go ahead and move on. So how about exacting tariffs on domestic companies attempting to outsource or Mexican companies putting a tax on things that they're trying to import? Yeah, that's always been a, a tricky proposition. If you're a total free trader, you don't like the idea of tariffs. Right. But I think Mr. Trump actually has a point as far as these companies like Ford Motor shipping off jobs to Mexico and then trying to sell the vehicles back here. But it could get tricky if he tries to do it to foreign companies and jacking up tariffs on that. As far as the economic impact of it, like you say, Dallas, it's really kind of a balancing act. But it's really hard to say if Trump slapped a 35% tariff, I think that would probably be economically detrimental for Mexico and the United States. But a reasonable tariff of 10 or 15% may not be that bad. It depends on the size of the firm and the impact on, on the market, the respective uh, market share. But, yeah, I think you guys are pretty nail on when you say you don't have a, too much of a high tariff or too little of a tariff. You, you kind of want to have this optimal figure to charge. Right. But then at the same time, you know, shipping jobs overseas is something that's been it's a very common issue that people, that the American voters had an issue with this past election. In the 90s, we had a thriving middle class, but then things started to wane around the time the recession hit, the Great Recession. And so what you saw was in the last five or eight years or so, like this changing of the guard is things are becoming automated and technology is rampantly pushing up the GDP. A lot of things have changed and people have not had a chance to really adapt and grasp the concept of we're a globalized economy. So I'm just kind of apprehensive about how well are we going to not physically seal the border, but just from a conceptual standpoint, when we talk about economic policies, like free trade is really important. I mean, I would tend to err on the side of more free trade than less. I'm definitely an advocate of free trade. And I think the more you have of it, the better you can encourage specialization in people or nations or whatever. And yeah. the more specialization you have and the more trade combined with that together, I think the more global efficiency you're going to have. So reducing trade to me seems like a net loss to global efficiency. And if you have an island economy, if you look at any island like Hawaii, Fiji, islands in general, prices are higher. Goods are more scarce. They have less trade because it's harder. Yeah, they have to import more. Exactly. You talk about specialization. I feel like that's where technology can really help specialize things. You look at people that work for Google now, and it's become one of the biggest companies in the world, frankly. And they have all these different methods of using information and collating it and curating it to our interest, you know. So Google is an actual verb now. People use it casually as a verb. And there's certain economists that have touched base on this. It's focusing how using technology to specialize and create or spur in job growth is really important to me. Yeah, I, I really, I kind of agree with that. And going back in history, this country has always had a set of history of failed protectionism. Back in the 1920s, American farmers were pressuring Congress to increase tariffs on agricultural goods. And then in the early 1930s, a lot of people don't know that Congress passed a massive tariff increase. And, you know, a lot of people believe the Great Depression was caused by the failure of the banking sector and the credit stock market crash. But a lot of people don't know that marginal tax rates were increased and tariffs were pushed up drastically. And a lot of economists believe that it was the tariff increase that caused the Great Depression. But going back to industry, you know, whenever new technologies arise, it always creates new jobs in that sector. 
when electricity in the incandescent light bulb first became widely used in the first part of the 20th century, everyone was concerned, oh, you're going to put candle makers out of business. <laughs> and, and nobody really complains about that now. But I really believe that what's shipping jobs overseas or to other countries is high labor costs here. It's really organized labor and the minimum wage phenomenon. And minimum wages seems to be getting higher, not lower. And there's a push for a $15 minimum wage now. And I think that is just disastrous for the economy. You're just going to get a bunch of poor people who can't find work. All right, so that's all we have time for in part one. Join us next time for part two, where we'll finish up the discussion. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on another edition of the Post Money Plan Podcast. 